perhaps we've looked at it this way before. I don't know for sure. Uh, it's been a long time since we talked about uh, the counting of the day of Pentecost. But, you know, years ago, uh, we kept it on Monday. And the argument was there in Leviticus 23 and uh, verse 15. You shall count to you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Um, and there was an argument about whether the from was inclusive or exclusive counting. And that's what Mr. Armstrong dwelt upon and trying to figure that out and even flopped back and forth a time or two because the exact meaning of the Hebrew was a bit unclear and he went to all kinds of Hebrew scholars and so on. Uh, whether that was modern Hebrew or ancient Hebrew, I don't know entirely. But the context really makes this question quite simple. Uh, let's notice that. You shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath... From the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even to the morrow, after the seventh Sabbath, shall you number fifty days, and you shall offer a new meal offering to the Eternal. So you count seven Sabbaths, which is seven times seven, forty-nine days, and then it says, the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, you'll offer a new meal offering. What day comes after the seventh Sabbath? Sunday. That shows you right there how it is to be counted. You don't have to get into all the ins and outs of exclusive or inclusive in the Hebrew and trying to figure out what ancient Hebrew was. Just look at the context. The day after the seventh Sabbath. It's quite simple. You start counting on the day after the Sabbath, during the Days of Unleavened Bread, and you stop counting on the Sunday after the seventh Sabbath and have Pentecost. That's the day you have the meal offering. It's actually quite simple if you pay attention to the context and you don't have to worry about the Hebrew. Most questions that we have in Scripture can be answered by context. I would say probably 95% of them without having to worry about the Hebrew or the Greek. Now, there are times when it can be helpful. I kind of got into this a little bit because I did want to rehearse to us that we kept Passover and the Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread uh, is the afternoon toward the end of this day that commemorates his resurrection. Now, the, the week did not fall exactly as it did in that actual crucifixion week. You would have to have a Tuesday Passover followed by a Wednesday crucifixion. So Wednesday afternoon to Saturday afternoon is 72 hours as Jonah was in the belly of the fish. So the week is not the same, but the weekly Sabbath during the Days of Unleavened Bread pictures his resurrection regardless of how the Passover fell during the week. And the next day is when you start to count Pentecost from, because the wave sheep was offered on Sunday, even as he went to his father the day after his resurrection on Sunday to be offered for us. Now, the reason I 
well, it's good for us to, to remember that and understand that later today uh, commemorates his resurrection. <clears throat> Just before sundown, they had to get him in the grave before sundown, and therefore uh, he was resurrected before sundown, 72 hours later. That's very clear in Scripture. Some say he was resurrected at sunrise on Sunday, and yet the Scripture very clearly says they went to the sepulcher while it was yet dark. Not sunrise. It was already, it was still dark, and he was already gone. Now, you have to understand their level of belief. They didn't believe he was going to be resurrected anyway. So they went to attend and be there uh, while it was still dark, perhaps do some praying or whatever. Maybe they understood, well, he's supposed to be resurrected, but how much do people believe? Like when Peter was in prison, and they were all praying that he be released. And he was released, and he came to the door, and they said, Peter's at the door, and they said, no, can't be, he's in prison. <laughs> we need to be, or come to the point that we can pray with expectation. Now, that's why that example is put in there, is they didn't really expect their prayer to be answered. So it's an example to show us <clears throat> that we have to come to the point. That's what faith is. Trust with expectation that it will happen. Anyway, I thought that those things were interesting in the light of where we are in the Psalms, and I prefaced going there with that, that thought because I want to develop it just a little more here. And that is that we're about to enter the fourth book of the Psalms, beginning with chapter 90. And even last night, as we were finishing up the third section, it still uh, smacked a great deal of gloom, doom, despair, frustration, uh, glimpses of hope that there could be a resolution to the difficulties. But as we saw going through this section, there were quite a few places where it referred directly to some of the things that Christ suffered during the time of his uh, beatings and uh, put down and everything that occurred during that period of time, and then he died. And the conditions under which he died are rehearsed here and are really were really prophetic for what would happen. And then when we see the account in the New Testament, they happened exactly that way. So this third section had quite a bit to do <clears throat> with the Passover and all that went through uh, occurred that night and the next day leading up to his death. And even to this point today, he was still dead as we rehearse the story, and would not have been resurrected until later this afternoon, probably just before sunset. You know, pick a number, 7.30 or something this evening, but not exact, but uh, toward the end of the day, before sunset. So he's still in the grave. Now, we go to chapter 90, the fourth section, and the commentaries say that this equates, some of them, to the book of Numbers, which shows to some degree the ups and downs of Moses' uh, rulership over Israel, uh, depicts some of the things that occurred during that time, some positive, some negative. 
And even the negative, to a great degree, had a positive spin in the end, because with the uh, even the rebellion of Korah and different ones, the problem was found and the problem was solved. Now, last night we were still talking about the problem being extant, still current. And now we're going to begin to project forward to the problem being solved. So, numbers can fit in some respects. I don't know that that's complete and entire all the way through. But another comment was that this section deals with the fruits of his victory and the Lord's reign and Israel's restoration. Of course, we put in there the church's restoration because we know that has to come first. So there is, excuse me, an almost complete change of approach and attitude in this next section. There's a little bit of carryover in chapter 90, but then it begins to change very quickly into a very positive thing. So we start today, today's sermon, uh, a little bit in chapter 90 of, of still some difficulty, but we quickly change over into a very positive approach thereafter in the glories of God. Now, the Christ was raised after the third day and accepted of the Father, then our forgiveness and glory was assured and salvation was assured and things look rosier. So, I'm glad today to get into this section, and ironically it is today, Uh, because it, again, shows exactly what we're facing and going through in terms of his crucifixion and his resurrection and the events that happened thereafter. So it's very timely again. Let's go into Psalm 90. This says it's a prayer of Moses. David didn't write this one, but a prayer of Moses. says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. This is more like a prayer, certainly. It is, well, it is in form of a prayer. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, that ties in with Christ again right there. Remember what it says, how Christ uh, was slain before the foundations of the world? But they had the plan all figured out. They knew what would happen, how it would happen. They knew ahead of time what Adam and Eve would do. It was inevitable. I mean, God could see that. In a way, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, does it? We can even see what is going to happen long before it does. Can we not when our children are born? We don't expect that they're going to be perfect, do we? Well, maybe a few others with stars in our eyes might think that for a short while, but it it quickly goes away because they become cantankerous and spoiled and nasty and and, uh, all kinds of things pretty quickly given a chance. But we can pretty well predict what human nature will do. I don't think the Father and the Son had too much trouble predicting what Adam and Eve would do. They did not cause them to sin. They just knew the nature that they had put in them, and they knew Satan pretty well, and they pretty well knew what would happen. 
So they knew way ahead of time that Christ would have to come to this earth, that the fact that he would be slain was known well ahead of the foundations of the earth. They knew how the plan would work out. They knew what steps they would have to take and how would they would see this thing through in the end. Now, we do have free moral agency and we don't always have to do what we want to do. We can change, can't we? We can be different. That's what these days are about. So Moses is hearkening back to that time when the Father and He who would become the Son were planning this whole thing. And that He would have to come and die. And then He would be resurrected. So He's the one who goes all the way back. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, you children of men. God put us here. He gave us opportunity And we generally turn to destruction one way or another, don't we? So then he restores us. The days of Noah, (laughs) he turned them to destruction. And then allowed them to live, repopulate the earth again. We've been kind of going through this process over and over uh, to one degree or another. Not quite as violent as Noah's flood, but uh, over and over with punishment and blessing. Go through the kings of Israel, good one, bad one, good one, bad one, just back and forth, back and forth. Uh, So he says, return, you children of men, turn to me. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, and as a watch in the night. So if Moses did indeed write this prayer, uh, he said the same thing in Numbers 14, 34, a day is as a thousand years to God. Uh, So, time goes very quickly for him, and he calculates, and we can even use a day to depict a thousand years, and that's made very clear in Hebrews 4, that uh, each day is is a thousand years, so every Sabbath, as today, uh, it commemorates the millennium, a time of peace, of our labors being done, of our troubles being done, and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That's what the Sabbath pictures, and we rehearse it every week. We need to keep the Sabbath every week, because how quickly we forget. You carry them away as with a flood. There is a sleep, and the morning they are like grass which grows up. Speaking of men and the cycle through the millenniums that we have had, and even through the week. We can begin to drift and we need the Sabbath to help bring us back and refocus us every week. Uh, This is similar to the message in Isaiah 40. It says, speak. He says, well, what shall I speak? What's the message? He says, all flesh is as grass. It grows up a little bit and then without rain it withers and dies and is burned. And that's the way men will be unless there is some kind of intervention. And... The Father and the Son are that intervention. That's our only hope. Because as human beings, we sin and the penalty is death. That's why these days are so important to us, is that we do have that sacrifice. And we also not only have the sacrifice with His death, but as pictured later in this day, we have the resurrection. And it is in the resurrection, really, that we have hope for the future. 
The Passover removes the past. The resurrection ensures the future. So we appreciate that our baggage can be removed, and then that we have hope of the resurrection. So he was resurrected later today, and that gives us hope. We're leading up to that in just a few hours here. Speaking of the grass, verse 6, In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. For we are consumed by your anger, and by your wrath are we troubled. So he is in this first chapter of this new book, rehearsing our relationship with God and how things have gone for mankind. And Moses was at a very pivotal point in the history of man and could look back and see these things. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. We can't hide anything from God. He knows what's going on. Uh, Pity that you would even try. For all our days are passed away in your wrath. We we spend our years as a tale that is told. So as human beings, we live our lives out. We do what we do, good, bad, or indifferent, and then it ends. What more is there? Is this all there is, as the song went, or is there something more? The, day of our year, the days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be eighty years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. That doesn't mean we waft off to heaven. Uh, it means we die and know nothing and our spirit goes back to the Father uh, as a recording and is there inert, not having thought, until the time of the resurrection. So he's just saying, this is the way it is in life. This is what, normally speaking, occurs. Who knows the power of your anchor? Even according to your fear, so is your wrath. We can fear God and fear what He is able to do, but that fear is based on the fact that his wrath can destroy. Witness Noah and the flood and witness the end time prophecies. Witness what happened to Mitzrayim when they opposed Israel and wouldn't let them go and God wanted them to go. He destroyed their whole empire, destroyed their armies and their leader in the sea. God can do as he sees fit. So he says, So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. He says, help us understand that we only live 70, maybe 80 years. And if you're really fortunate, maybe 90. Or, you know, you can live a little longer. But it's not a whole lot longer than that. And even if you do, it isn't worth a whole lot, is it? So he says, help us to understand that we have a limited period of time here to lay up treasure in heaven, if you will, to accomplish something that is worthwhile and to go from this life to a secure future. We need to use wisdom in how we use this time. Return, O Eternal, how long? We just read that up in verse 46 of the previous chapter. 
So he's repeating a little bit of the end of the last book here in setting the stage for what is, what is about to occur in the following chapters. How long? And let it repent you concerning your servants. A prayer we have. Forgive us, turn your face to us, and bless us again. O oh, satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein you have afflicted us, and the years wherein we have seen evil. Now, he was writing this after the slavery, after the deliverance, and then the murmuring, and toward the end of the 40 years of misery in the wilderness. So he had seen a great deal of distress and frustration and anger and all the human emotions of people who don't have much hope and are wandering, knowing that they have to wander until their carcass falls and their children will go into the promised land. They had that knowledge. Now, you talk about a frustrating way to live. <clears throat> so Moses is expressing these things. We we'll only live so long, then we die, as those people did. Now what? Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And their children were to go into the promised land, just as we here at the end time are scheduled to go into the promised land. <coughs> More than the church ever began to realize, physically here, at the end, for a few years, even before Christ returns and the millennium starts. We are to go into the original promised land and begin a restitution of all things as an example to the world. And we'll see that a little later, even here in the Psalms. Let the beauty of the eternal our God be upon us and establish you the work of our hands upon us. Yes, the work of our hands establish you it. And we're waiting because we know that a spiritual and very likely now a physical work must be done and we need our hands strengthened to do it, don't we? Because we're powerless. We can't do anything. If we have to, we can barely climb the hill to even get up where the temple's to be. <laughs> Much less build one. We're getting old and feeble. We're getting, we don't have the knowledge. There's a lot of things we simply don't have. So I think Moses' prayer is very fitting here. That we're looking to begin doing a work at the end time and hopefully be a part of what God does. I hope he doesn't have to bypass us because of our intransigence and stiff-necked, stubborn-headed, or stubborn, not-headed approach, <clears throat> but that we can be compliant and humble and meek and serving, and that God can use us in this. We know of it, so he expects us to be there, doesn't he? Not many people even know what he is going to do here in the end time, and the fact that he has shown us that means that he intends for us to be part of it. And the only thing that can stop that is if we back off and don't do what we're supposed to do. So that's the key to the whole thing. So Moses is saying, you know, we're weak, we don't last long, help us. That's how he opens this book. <clears throat> now let's go to chapter 91. And we see here God's intervention. I, re I remember Psalm 91 so very well because... 
Get, get this, how things have changed in my lifetime. My seventh grade teacher made all the kids in the classroom, this was a public school, not imperial, but seventh grade and when I was still in public school, required all the students in the class to memorize a psalm. We had our choice of, I think, about five different ones we could pick, and I picked this one, Psalm 91. Uh, I was lazy, and it seemed easier to remember than some of them. But uh, nonetheless, in public school, they could ask you to memorize the Bible. Try that today in our public schools and see how far you get. Things have changed. Anyway, Psalm 91 takes a different tone after Moses' prayer that God be involved. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Now we know that as this end time keeps moving forward, that there's going to come a time in the very near future, within a few years, I think it is still a few years away, because there's work that has to be done first. The temple in Jerusalem, for instance, and the main things. So I think the time to go to a place of safety is still several years away, but he says he will be our shield and our defense even as we do this work at the end. We won't have fled to Zion, but he says I will be a wall of fire around you and a covert from the heat. The, the climate will change and things will be much better and God will have to protect So it's not talking necessarily about the place of safety per se, but of God's protection on the end-time church while we do the work that has to be done. He will then remove that protection at the day the tribulation, or the 1260 days, is to occur, and Jerusalem and the temple will be, uh, the abomination of desolation will be set up there, and we'll have to flee for our lives. But in the meantime, we are almost at the point where it's time to start doing this work. Now, we, I think, already are in preparing a place and making ready for those that will come later, the remnant, the full remnant. And I think we do have God's protection here. But it is not to the point yet we need that divine wall out there. That'll come when the enemies arise and we need it. We don't need it yet because we've not reached that danger point. But it'll come. So blessed, he says, is he that dwells in the secret place of the Most High and shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Eternal, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him will I trust. Now, he ultimately is our place of refuge, right? I mean, you can go to any place on this earth and hope that it is a refuge, but unless God's protection is there, it is not. You take the secret places of the stairs, the grand staircase here in Zion, and there's some mighty fine places to go hide, right? But with modern technology and warfare... We could be found and we could be killed unless God protected the place. So he may designate a place and say, if you come here, that is where I will protect you. But it still has to be him. 
For without him, no place is safe. <clears throat> so it's dwelling under the shadow of the Almighty that matters. He is our refuge and our fortress. My God, in him will I trust. Now that goes back to the thought I made earlier. We need expectation of God's help and protection. We need faith to do what he wants us to do, no matter the danger. It just doesn't matter. He will take care of us. It's his work. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. I read some websites now and then uh, where people, well, they have what they call the preppers. I'm sure you've heard of them. Everybody preparing for the trouble to come. And they know there's trouble coming. They can see it. They can feel it. They see the tightening of government around us and our liberties being destroyed. They see the preparations to put us in prison camps and to make slaves and peasants of us. There are people who clearly see that the world's economy is about to collapse and that the U.S. economy is going right with it and maybe we'll even set it off. So they are preparing. They're getting ready best they can. In other words, this is now. This prophecy was never truer, or this chapter was never truer than it is today. This is as timely as it gets. We're preppers too. But hopefully our main preparation is not just food and water, but our main preparation is spiritual. Because God will protect those who serve Him. So our real protection is not food and water and ammo, but God. And there are preppers out there who recognize that too. They just don't know the true God. They don't know, understand it. But it's coming. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings shall you trust. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Remember Matthew 23 there, where, I think it's 23, where Christ said that he was like the hen with the chickens under his wings. Here he says he'll protect us under his wings. You go to the true original site of Jerusalem and you see two geological wings spread out there signifying the protection of Almighty God under the wings of a great, great eagle. Whether he refers to himself as an eagle at time or as a chicken at others uh, doesn't matter. It's, it's the overspreading of his wings and the protection that a mother gives her babies. His trust, or his truth, shall be your shield and buckler. What does the truth do? It sets us free. It sets us free from the worry, the concern, that other people suffer on this earth, not knowing whether they're going to live or die, and afraid that they will die, because of what they see coming. Only those who keep the truth are the ones that God will protect. The truth is the difference. You shall not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flies by day. So you don't have to worry about warfare, the military, an attack on our nation, nor for the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor for the destruction that wastes at noonday. So there is what? Scheduled to come by Ezekiel 5. War, the sword, famine and pestilence. And then captivity and slavery. Those are the three things, main things, that are going to come on our nation. And they're 
talked about right here. You don't have to worry about that. A thousand shall fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. God is going to make a separation just as he did when they were in the land of Ham. Went through some of it, and he made a separation, and Israel did not suffer any more of it. And he puts us in the same position that Israel was then. He will protect us from all that is coming. It shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you behold and see the reward of the wicked. There is a scripture that says you'll stand on the mountains of Zion and see the destruction out before you. If L.A. and Vegas are destroyed, we'd see the fire of their burning from the mountains right here. I can go in my backyard right now at night and see just the lights of Las Vegas slightly to the southwest. Lights up the whole sky on a dark night. Uh, so what if it was all burning? You'd really see it. And if you're up on the mountain, then you'd have a front row seat. And I kind of suspect that Las Vegas will burn. <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah did. And that's pretty well what Vegas can be equated to. You'll see the reward of the wicked. Not, you won't feel it. You'll just see it with your eyes. See? You'll be protected, but you'll see it happening. Because you have made the eternal, which is my refuge, even the most high, your habitation. That's the reason you'll see it with your eyes and not feel it with your body, is because you've made God your refuge. This is very encouraging suddenly, isn't it? That God is there, He's going to take care of us. There shall no evil befall you, neither shall any plague come near your dwelling. So no, no evil of any kind, and no plague, communicable diseases that are going to hit very hard, will not come near your dwelling. You don't have to worry. Whether it's a soldier or a germ, neither one will be a problem. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. So wherever you go, whatever you do, the angels will be there to take care of you, to protect you. They shall bear you up in their hands, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You're not even going to go hiking and turn your ankle. You're not going to break your ankle. You're not going to fall skiing and break your wrist. Things will change. God is going to take care of His people. The millennium is a time when we will have no tears, no pain, no suffering. And the microcosm of the millennium, which God is going to set up under the two witnesses and the end time remnant, is going to be essentially the same way. This isn't just metaphor. He means it. Isaiah 35, he talks about the desert blooming like a rose, and he talks about the lame walking and the deaf hearing and the blind seeing and the healings that are going to occur. And they're real. And they're before the millennium for God's true people. That is very clear in Zechariah 2, 3, and 4 and in Haggai and other places. It's pre-millennial. And so is this. Now, it certainly encompasses the millennium for the whole earth. But it starts with us beforehand. We're not quite there yet. But it isn't far off, I do believe.
You shall tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon shall you trample under feet. Now, let's prove what I just said right from the context right here. He's talking about a time when there'll be shooting arrows. He's talking about a time when there's pestilence. He's talking about a time when society is upside down, right? That's not millennial. And he's talking about protection during this context, during the time when the wars are still going on. So pay attention to context, because it will give you a timeline for when these things are occurring. Now, it carries on through, as I said, but it starts now, or pretty quickly now. <clears throat> you shall tread upon the lion and adder. The young lion and the dragon shall you trample under feet. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high, because he has known my name. God, if we humble ourselves, will exalt us, protect us. And see, there is, a, there is a measure of exaltation right there. You're being set aside or set higher in his mind than the rest of the world that's dying of the sword and the pestilence and the famine and slavery. So if we serve him and follow him, he will set us higher. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. If we obey God, we will receive longer life in this earth because he says he will heal the elderly and the old men that survive to see this resurrection or revival of the church are going to be restored. Deer's legs and so on, he says, or have legs like deer. Well, I don't think they'll be that big around, but... Uh, nonetheless, they'll react and work like deer legs so that you can run and jump and climb and do the things we will need to do to work. God will do that. So, an extension of human life, and I think also a reference to eternal life here with salvation. He'll save us out of this world and the troubles that are in it, but also, ultimately, eternal salvation. So things are picking up here. Uh, a lot of encouragement in Psalm 91 <clears throat> in this new section. Isn't that already talking about protection and revival? God's taking care of us in a way that He isn't yet to date? Yeah, it's projecting into the near future and things are going to get better. It is a good thing, chapter 92, to give thanks to the Eternal and to sing praises unto the name, O Most High, or to your name, O Most High. To show forth your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night. In other words, our focus is on God and all the things He does for us, and we put that in remembrance day and night. Uh, it's something that is, never gets far from our mind, because our hope and our refuge and our deliverance, and our ultimate blessing and salvation, and all that is in God. Anything good to come out of this earth and what's on it comes from God. We cannot produce it ourselves. Man has tried, God has allowed it, and man has failed. We are coming to the point very quickly now where all flesh 
would die, and no flesh be saved alive, except for those who are righteous, who are serving God. And he says, for the elect's sake, he will intervene before everybody dies. We have the technology to do it now. And mankind will and would use it at the behest of Satan and destroy us all, given the chance. But God will intervene and stop it. So who do we look to? (laughs) I think that's a no-brainer, isn't it? Well, I I guess a no-brainer is really not the best. You've got to have a little bit of brain. But it doesn't take a whole lot of it to see that God is the place to be. So, focus on him. Verse 3, Upon an instrument of ten strings, and upon the psaltery, upon the harp, with a solemn sound. So God wants us to sing hymns to him. We do it at every service, and that's a good thing. He loves to hear us sing. For you, eternal, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands. Now notice here, as we get into this more and more, it isn't us that does anything. We glory in the things God does. That's where the hope and the happiness and the blessing come from. So our focus then gets off as it was in the third section, second section. Our troubles, our problems, our lack of blessing, the troubles Christ was going through since he was a type of all mankind and he went through a great deal of distress and was a man of sorrows on this earth because of all he saw going on around him and what he himself was going through. But this changes because he was resurrected and because in his resurrection we have hope. So we look to him, not to ourselves. O eternal, how great are your works, and my thoughts are very deep. Or your thoughts are very deep. He knows exactly what's going on, what he's going to do next, how he's going to do it. He's thought this whole thing through. He has a plan. And he is going to work it out. He tells us in Romans 11 that all Israel will be saved. All Israel today is a long way from that. Look at our country. Look at Northwest Europe, Africa, South Africa, Australia, Canada, wherever God's physical Israel is, they're not anywhere near salvation. But it's going to happen in his plan. He knows how to work it out. He has great works and his thoughts are very deep. A brutish man knows not. Neither does a fool understand this. Most people just don't get it. When the wicked spring is the grass, and when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. If they don't repent, they'll go into the lake of fire and be burned up, and that's the end of it. So we can see the wicked around us and think, well, they seem to be doing fairly well right now. That'll change very dramatically. But you, eternal, are most high forevermore. The wicked will go, but God is there forever. Whose side do you want to be on? This world and Satan's or God's? That's easy, isn't it? Here, but try putting it into practice day in and day out and see how much fun you have. 
It's easy to understand that that's the way it has to be, but to get completely on God's side and not straddle the fence and be double-minded does not come easy. But he pressures this thought. Verse 9, For lo, your enemies, O eternal, for lo, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. But my horn shall you exalt like the horn of a unicorn. I shall be anointed with fresh oil. Unicorn's horn was just one right in the middle, but it stuck pretty much straight up. It was something that on that particular animal was impressive, something you would notice right away. So he says, I'm going to be exalted like a unicorn's horn. Come out of the head and go right straight up. So, see, this is positive. He's comparing, well, this is what the wicked are going to do, but I'm not going there. I'm going to be with you. And you will exalt me like the unicorn. I shall be anointed with fresh oil. Not stale, not old, but God is going to renew His Spirit within us. That which was dying out or we were lackadaisical about is going to be renewed. Ten virgins wake up at midnight, they check to see if they got any oil. We better have fresh oil. My, also, my eye also shall see my desire on my enemies, and my ears shall hear my desire of the wicked that rise up against me. God says, I'll take care of your enemies. You don't have to worry. <clears throat> this is extending the thought that we saw there in chapter 91. God will take care of it. You don't have to worry about a thing. You will not be harmed, you will not be diseased, you will not have any trouble. Boy, what a day to look forward to, huh? Verse 12, The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Palm tree is a very stately tree. It grows up and leaves out at the top, or fronds out, I guess you might say. And, it, and it, it just has a stateliness and a beauty to it that a lot of trees don't quite have. Or like a cedar in Lebanon. Huge cedar trees, like grow up in the Pacific Northwest. So that's the way you'll be. You're not going to be a scrub brush anymore. <clears throat> Those that be planted in the house of the Eternal shall flourish in the courts of our God. We've got to set up a courtyard, even physically, if Ezekiel's temple is to be built here at the end time and then the eternal courts to follow if we do this job right. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing. Now, isn't that what I just mentioned? That God said that we'll bring forth fruit in old age? When you're beyond the age? Remember Abraham and Sarah? Uh-uh, ain't going to happen. But it did. Because God performed a miracle. And they produced Isaac when both of them were way beyond even a glimmer of hope of that. The body's dysfunctional and unable. And yet God caused a miracle to occur. So he's done it in the past. He says, I'm going to do it in the future. You old folk out there, me included, are going to produce fruit in our old age. That's what he says. And he'll make us fat and flourishing. Well, there's something to look forward to. We're all going to get fat. Uh, different kind of fat. Uh, not the kind that I don't like to look at in my mirror, but the kind that means flourishing and wealthy and doing well. 
healthy, if you will, not obese and sloppy. To show that the eternal is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Now see, he's going to cause these things to happen, not just because we're such nice people. He's going to cause them to happen to show that he is upright, that he doesn't lie, and if he makes these promises, it will happen. There is no question about it. He is our rock, our salvation, and our hope. And there is no unrighteousness. He's not lying to us. He's telling us the truth. When we read all these prophecies back here. 93. The eternal reigns. See? He's not making these promises in vain. He is in charge. Satan doesn't reign. He does in a limited way for a limited time right now. But Christ has eclipsed him by resisting him, and he will now come and take the reins completely over the earth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength. Wherewith he has girded himself, the world also is established that it cannot be moved. Now, he is going to shake the things that can be moved, he says there in Hebrews. But those that cannot be moved will remain. And he is going to establish it with stability so that it can no longer be moved. It has been moved in the past, hasn't it? Even the orbit of the earth or something in the heavens changed. So we went from 360-day, a perfect calendar, to now an awkward Difficult one of 365 and a quarter that is divisible by nothing but confusion. And that's why confusion reigns on the calendar in the holy days. There is no perfect calendar right now. It just does not exist. So anyone who tells you he has the God-breathed perfect calendar, he doesn't even have a clue what he's talking about. He doesn't know what's going on in the heavens or how God counts or where the calendar even is. He thinks it has anything to do with barley in some Jerusalem somewhere. He doesn't understand the calendar at all. Enough of that for today. But it will be established, unmoving. It will revert back to the 360-day year. It has to. In order for 1260, 42 months... And uh, three and a half years to occur, you have to have a 360-day calendar. No question about it. And that's one of the prophecies of the book of Revelation. So the instability and knocked off course is going to be reversed and it will go right back to perfection. That is coming pretty soon now. So God is faithful in the heavens. And he will restore that which he made, which was very good. And today it is very confusing, but that will be fixed. Your throne is established of old. You are from everlasting. So even before the foundation of the earth, God could predict what man would do. He could pretty much predict what Christ would do and say, clear back when this was written, Things are going to work out. 
they had the capacity to work them out. So Christ's throne was established way back, and and then he will come and reign, and that will happen. The floods have lifted up, O Eternal, the floods have lifted up the voice, the floods lift up their waves. Now that's floods of men, probably, metaphorically in the Bible, Uh, seas and floods are great groups and armies of men. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. You can put all the armies of mankind on earth together, and He is louder thunder than they are. Your testimonies are very sure. The testimony we find in this book that says what God is going to do is very sure. It cannot be questioned. Even though we get impatient at times, we're being assured here that he's not lying. It is going to happen in his time and in his way, and these prophecies will come to pass. 94. O eternal God, to whom vengeance belongs. Vengeance is not ours, it's God's. We don't need to be warlike or vengeful or have attitudes of vengeance toward anyone or getting even or any such thing. That's God's business. He will judge. He will take care of all those things. We don't have proper judgment. We don't even understand ourselves, much less anyone else we're trying to condemn. That is God entirely, and even He does not know fully what each and every one of us is going to do. He ponders our heart. He ponders our our course. He watches what we do, do. And this is a judgment time. So at the end of our life, physically on this earth, or at the time of the first resurrection, he will have come to a conclusion. We will either live or die. It's that simple. Judgment is now on the spiritual house of Israel. It's not on the physical house of Israel yet. Now, physical judgment based on the old covenant is, and that is going to come with famine and sword and pestilence and captivity. Physical Israel is currently being judged under the old covenant, a covenant of death. Now, we who have partaken of the new covenant, those to whom it has been offered, are going to be judged under the new covenant with the sacrifice and forgiveness of our Savior. But that has not been offered to most people, only to a few that have been called. I don't know how many people really understand that. Most Protestants and people out in the world think that they're living under the new covenant. No, they're not. Until you have true repentance and have acknowledged the truth of this book and received the Holy Spirit of God with the laying on of hands at baptism done properly, you are not a partaker of the new covenant. You haven't made it with Him. Because you don't, how can you, how can you be part of a covenant you don't even know exists? You don't even understand. How can you say the law of God and all of his statutes are done away when the New Testament clearly shows that they're still in effect? This is the love of God that you keep the commandments, Apostle John. 
after all had been said and done. Now, what was Christ's last instruction to his disciples after that Passover service before he was taken captive? Keep my commandments. That was his last instruction. Keep my commandments. That was to the people who were establishing the new covenant. So if you think the law is done away with, you don't even understand the new covenant, much less have a, be a partaker in it. We are under the administration of death in this country. And God is about to wreak that upon us. Only a few true believers of the real truth are partakers of the new covenant. Hasn't even been offered to the others yet. Let's see. Verse 5, Thy testimonies are very sure. That's where I was. Uh, What he's promised is going to happen. Holiness becomes your house, O eternal, forever. Not becomes... Holiness becomes or uh, is what is in his house forever. Let's catch chapter 94 then. O eternal God... Oh, we've already, we've already gotten into that. Where was I? And two. Lift up yourself, you judge of the earth. Render a reward to the proud. Well, he's... Yeah, that's where I was started off. Was vengeance is his, not ours. He's the only one that can judge. And he has to judge by either the Old Covenant or the New Covenant. Lift up yourself, you judge of the earth. We're not judges or condemners of our brethren. God is. Render a reward to the proud. Eternal, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? The Scriptures tell us clearly that it's not going to be much longer. How long shall they utter and speak Difficult, hard things, and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves. Pride, ego, vanity, that's what the world runs on. It's what they go by, their personal pride. Athletes talk about, well, it's a matter of pride. You're not going to beat us in our house or however they want to frame it. It's all about pride of life, pride of age, pride of strength. Solomon talked about that in the book of Ecclesiastes. Pride of mentality, pride of looks, whatever ego we have. How long is that going to last? They break in pieces your people, O Eternal, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. This world would do us all in if God so allowed. Yet they say, the eternal shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. They come across God's true people and they figure, oh well, God's not paying attention or God's dead or whatever their attitude is. We can do what we want. These people are fodder for our cannons. These people we can do with as we please. God's going to turn that around. Understand, you brutish among the people, and you fools, when will you be wise? When will they wake up? I'll tell you, they're not going to until all this destruction comes down upon them. And over 90% of the population of the earth has died. Then when Christ returns, those who survive are going to have been humbled. 
And they'll say, oh, now I see. I think I'll go up to Jerusalem and worship the king, the Lord of hosts. This, this other thing didn't work out too well. This new world order that we all accepted, and that beast and false prophet that seemed to have all the answers, that, that, that didn't work out too well. I just saw them go into the lake of fire. Uh, I, maybe, maybe this new guy is the one I better pay attention to, the one that put them away. That's when they'll be wise. He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? You know, if God could make an ear, he could design it and make the thing to work. Look at an ear. It's strange, isn't it, that that little flap on the side of your head, and somebody can talk and you can actually hear it. Isn't that strange? You could shape something like this out of wood and it wouldn't do a thing. But God could put the mechanism in there to make that work so we can hear one another and hear music and, and all the beautiful things that can be around us. Chirping of birds. Now, if God could design that, and He has an ear, don't you think He can hear? Why do we think God is deaf? Why do the wicked around us think that God is deaf? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? We can't make an eye. We can't make one work. If it's not working very well, we might put some spectacles on it to make it focus better. But we can't design it. We can't do that. God can. Well, He sees what's going on. He's not, it's not hidden from Him. He that chastises the heathen shall not he correct. If he can make an ear and make it hear and hear himself and an eye, then certainly he can take care of the heathen. He that teaches man no knowledge shall not he know? The eternal knows the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. He understands that all thoughts of mankind naturally and normally are vain or vanity of self. And vain also means that it doesn't last. If something is not vain, that means that it goes on and on, like eternal life. But if it's vanity, that means that it passes. Even as physical beauty passes, so does life. And it ends. And it's over. It's temporary is another good word for vanity. Not just ego, but it has a lot of different meanings. I don't know whether you think of yourself as blessed right now. Sometimes we are frustrated. But notice this, verse 12. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O eternal, and teach him out of your law. We don't often look upon chastening as a blessing, do we? I don't think I ever did as a child when dad or mom would grab the belt. I didn't look upon that as a blessing. To me, that was a curse. <laughs> to me, that was going to hurt. But God says when He chastens us, it's not just to hurt us. It's to help change our mind, our attitude, our approach, and turn us to Him. So it is a blessing what the church is going through right now. It is an absolute blessing that the church is being scattered, that is being spewed out of his mouth, 
that it is in turmoil and confusion. I bet we haven't looked at it that way much, have we? We've despaired and been frustrated. Like we'd look at a whipping from a parent. But God tells us right here that what the church is going through is a blessing. Why? Because if it gets bad enough, we're going to get on our knees, we're going to repent, and we're going to serve God, and then we can receive blessing from God. So that makes what caused us to repent a blessing. A blessing, if you will, in disguise. We don't think of it that way. But, it, but it's right if it turns out right. Okay? That's when it's right. That you may give him rest from the days of adversity. See, it's a blessing that we be chastened so then we can be given rest in the days of adversity, which are upon us. Until the pit be digged for the wicked. It's almost upon them, and they're about to die. So he's chastening us just a little bit ahead of time to straighten us out before the axe falls. What a blessing that is if we heed and pay attention and follow through. For the Eternal will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. There's another promise. He's not going, he may paddle us around a bit, but he's not going to cast us off and give up on us. He won't do it. He won't forsake his inheritance. Didn't Paul write that Christ said, that nothing can separate us from him, neither death nor persecution or a lot of things he named there in Romans. He will not forsake us or leave us ever. But judgment shall return to righteousness, and all the upright in heart shall follow it. So Christ is going to come. He's going to set the standard of righteousness, and those who are seeking him will follow it. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the eternal had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. I was almost at the point where if God didn't revive me, I was going to die. Spiritually, we've been put in that position where there's been great uh, confusion, frustration, difficulty, Church falling apart, people falling away. We've had people dying of the spiritual sword, famine and pestilence and slavery back into the world. And we're almost at the point of perishing unless God intervenes. When I said my foot slips, your mercy, O Eternal, held me up. Sometimes I wonder how much can we take? How long can we go before we give up? Before we say, I can't do this anymore. Well, this is being expressed here, that you get almost to the point you say, man, I'm dead, I've had it. And then it changes. But that's what it takes to get us to be as close to God as we need to be. When my foot slips, you know, if you're up on a mountain or something and your foot slips and it's a long way down, uh, you can die real fast. Or as some have expressed it, I have... One foot in the grave and the other one on a banana peel. Getting down to that point where one little slip and it's all over for us. 
when we get to that point where we realize there's not a whole lot of hope any other way, God will lift us up. In the multitude of my thoughts within me, your comforts delight my soul. So he says, think about God. Think about all these promises he's, he's reiterating right here. And that will give you hope and delight. Shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with you, which frames mischief by a law? Don't our lawmakers make laws that frame mischief? They make laws that, that line their pockets. They make line, uh, laws that make their lives better and, lives, and laws that make our lives worse. They think about themselves. That's what we have in our country. There is no justice in the land. It is sick from head to foot, top to bottom, and everything in between. And they make laws for their own benefit and against us. They gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous and condemn the innocent blood. But the Eternal is my defense, and my God is the rock of my refuge. And he shall bring upon them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Yes, the Eternal, our God, shall cut them off. So he shows us there's going to be a difference made. We turn to him, we serve him, we will be protected, but the wicked are in deep trouble. I find that very encouraging to consider and to remind us of as we go through here. So let's stop there then.